0: Hello and welcome to Sum Zero Headlines. This is Avery Pagan. Today we bring you Artem Fokin of Carrocon Capital, presenting one side of the ongoing case against Burford, the embattled UK litigation funder. Fokin is one of the most vocal bulls on the name, going up directly against Carson Block and his team at Muddy Waters, who initiated their very public short campaign against Burford in early August. Here to comment on those allegations, share his rebuttal thesis, and make some sense of Burford's unique reporting process is Artem Fokin. Welcome to the show.
1: So first off, um, you know, again, welcome to the podcast. I wanted you to just give us a little bit of background on yourself. Um, I know you had worked at Greenberg Traurig, but um, if you can just give a quick background of you and your fund, that'd be helpful as an intro.
2: Of course, Uh, Divya, thank you for having me on your podcast, and I'm excited to be here with you, obviously, and I'm also excited that you guys at SunZero are launching a new medium to communicate with the community. Appreciate it. In terms of my background, I'm originally from Russia, and I was trained in Russia as a lawyer. I came to the U.S. about 15 years ago, and uh, initially, when I came, I did my master's in law at, at New York University School of Law, which allowed me to sit for the bar exam and started practicing law in New York with a big international law firm, Greenwood Traurick. So this is where my first familiarity with the legal system in the U.S. as well as the court system to a lesser extent uh, comes from. And Got I, it. Practiced that. I practiced law for a few years. And uh, after that, I realized that I want to get on the business side, on the investment side, because I obviously worked with a lot of clients with that type of background and on that type of transactions. Private equity, would see hedge funds, big m and transactions. And this, that's how I found my way to Stanford Business School, where I went in 2009. I finished in 2011, and then I worked for, another, for a hedge fund in here in the Bay Area which did distressed debt and event-driven investing called Outrider. And after a few years there, I went on my own and launched Caracan Capital.
1: Got it. So you've been doing, um, I guess, public markets investing um, since after business school, right? Is that yes,
2: since 2011. That will Got be it. fair.
1: And have you, have you done a lot of um, distressed or, or credit-oriented investing? Or have you mostly focused on equities? Where, where have you mostly spent?
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, so first, obviously, f- from a legal disclaimer perspective, Caracan Capital and entities affiliated with it are loan-burford capital shares. So that's a big disclaimer, which I should back try. at back at out back trader. We focus primarily on uh, just on uh, debt opportunities and the distressed debt or very stressed credit space. At Caratan Capital, we're primarily focusing on the equity as an asset class, or, or any equity-linked securities generally.
1: Got it. Got it. Um, and you know, just for the audience, um, I just want to you know mention your background on Sum Zero. You've, you've been on Sum Zero for a number of years, um, and you've obviously posted you know a fair number of ideas. Have been a ranked analyst. Um, you know, one of one of our top ranked analysts for for quite some time. Uh, you, you know, what? When did you first discover Burford Capital? Uh, I'm just curious, as you, you know, especially given your legal background, um, how you first came across the company. Well,
2: um, that's an interesting story. And by the way, speaking of Sam Zero, yes, I love writing on Sam Zero. I love sharing ideas with the community. The community is terrific, and it's always nice to get feedback from people and and stress test your ideas with other smart individuals. So that's one of the reasons why. I like sharing my ideas. That's one. And the second reason why I like writing on Sum Zero, it's a good way to bring two other smart investors ideas and stocks and companies that may be misunderstood. So for example, we uh, I I won your annual Sum Zero stock contest three times in a row with Commerce Hub, which was the recent spin-off. And when I wrote about it, it was zero sell-side coverage. When I won next time, I won with TripAdvisor, which is obviously very well-covered stock and very well-understood consumer company, both as consumers and analysts. But my thesis was focused on something that nobody on the sell side ever written about, to the best of my knowledge, and I have not seen any buy-side write-ups on that issue either. It was about all non-hotel business. Everybody was focusing on hotels, and I focused almost exclusively on non-hotels. And Burford hits into this team as well. The company back then was four or five billion market cap, roughly, and uh, they buy they have some sell side coverage, mostly out of London, but the buy side awareness about the stock was very, very low. So initially, the way I found about Burford was through a friend of mine who mentioned this to me as like, "Hey, you're a former lawyer, right, Artem? And I'm like, "Yeah, I am." Listen, I think you you like this industry. It's super cool. And there is this company Burford, ta 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 ta. That's how I first found about Burford, and I thought, gee, that's indeed very interesting industry. And uh, because I'm a former lawyer, even though technically I'm still a member of the New York Bar exam- of the New York Bar, even yeah. though my status says retired from the practice of law, which is slightly weird because I don't really think of myself as someone who is retired. And uh, Because of my former legal training, plus work at a big law firm in New York, I I immediately recognized the customer value proposition that Burford was bringing to the table, both to the the final customers, final clients, meaning parties, generally companies, who are litigating and pursuing the defense of their legal rights in the court of law or through arbitration, as well as lawyers. Because the very common... Pushback, which I've heard from people over the past nine, ten months, is, uh, oh, why do, wouldn't lawyers do litigation finance themselves?
1: Why? Yeah. What, what let's
2: would let's it... take a, let's just
1: take a step back. Um, let's do it. You know, just just if you can just give a background on what Burford does. I mean, obviously, it's a litigation finance company. But if you if you can just maybe talk um, about that industry as a whole, who the players are. And, and just what, what the business model of Burford is, that, that'd be, I think, a good um, foundation to continue the conversation.
2: Sounds good. So think about Burford this way. You can think about Burford as a, an investor in legal claims. You can also think about Burford as a creditor, as a party who, provide fin- who provides financing to generally a company, a corporation, that pursues its legal claims. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean? Let's you know, unbundle this a little bit. There is a Company A. Company A believes that its legal rights have been violated. For whatever reason, the company does not have the cash available to pursue the defense of those rights. Sure. Maybe they are short on cash. A good example would be a Silicon Valley startup that believes that it's very valuable IP has been violated by a multi-billion dollar company. And guess what, multi-billion dollar company can litigate that startup out of its existence. They don't have the cash. And if that startup goes to its round C venture investors and says like, guys, could you please write us another 15, 20 million dollar check so that we can go and sue this big company out of Mountain View or whatever the case they are based, probably they will not, those investors will not res- give this idea very well. This is where Burford can come into play and offer something like this. How about this, dear startup? We will write you a check that will be used to finance a very big legal bill that you will unavoidably incur. In exchange, if you lose, you're not on the hook for anything. We'll shake hands and walk away. However, if you win, We want to receive, and obviously every deal is very different, and it's custom-made, and Burford, as well as other players in the space, are very, very thoughtful about it. But, as an example, I can outline this deal structure. So Burford would receive 12% return a year over duration of that litigation. So in our example, if it's two years process, then Burford will make 24% cumulatively, 12% a year, during that period of time. On top of that, Burford would often negotiate a deal where they would get, after that preferred return, Burford would get the principal invested back. And then Burford will receive a certain percentage of any money, any amount of money recovered through litigation above that threshold, let's say 20%. So that's how Burford makes money. Um,
1: and, and then speaking to the, um, you know, the, the, the selection criteria, um, I know a lot of people are going to be interested in just understanding how, you know, how Burford decides what cases to invest in and not invest in. Um, if you could just give some framework there and, and uh, maybe just talk through, you know, what their investment committee looks like. I don't know if you have clarity into that, but um, anything regarding their criteria would be helpful.
2: Oh, yeah, Absolutely. So we can think about Burford selection criteria from two angles. One is economic and another one is... So let's start with economic. When someone brings a case to Burford, Burford needs to see that they can invest in this case and if they win, Burford will make enough money. For example, there are a few elements at play here. So number one, how big are damages which a potential client is claiming. Because realistically, most clients think that their damages are a lot higher than they actually are. So Burford needs to adjust for that. That's number one. Then Burford needs to come the amount of damages recovered against the legal costs. Burford course, has yeah. plenty of very experienced lawyers and they can estimate that pretty well. Plus, remember it's a lot of, similar to stock investing, it's a lot about pattern recognition. And when Burford investment personnel throughout their legal careers as well as their career at Burford have seen hundreds of cases, they develop a pretty good pattern recognition. And they can say, okay, this case will take $2 million in legal fees. This one will take 15 Okay, this one will take 10 So they compare that. And then they see if those numbers work out, they, then Burford personnel will see whether they can take a portion of those winnings in a way that will meet their target return. So that's how the economic side of this process works. On the legal side, the team will analyze the legal merits of the case. What are similar, what are similar cases that they've seen in the past? How did they play out? What the duration of litigation or arbitration can be? What are the likely opponent's strategy and defense strategy will be? So that's a, you know that's the matter of legal minds thinking very hard about those issues. While the first matter is more is a lot more similar to finance investing, stock picking, or private equity. On,
1: on the legal the, side, um, are, that, are, is the is the investment committee at Burford? I mean, I'm assuming they're all attorneys, but do you know for sure what their backgrounds are? I mean, are they? all litigation guys, or what's what sort of the, the background of the folks who are actually pulling the trigger on, you know, writing a $15 million check to some corporation to fund a, a lawsuit?
2: So the majority of people on the, on the investment committee are former or lit, former litigators. They don't represent clients themselves, obviously, anymore. But yeah. again, they are, you know, technically they're members of the bar and they're technically still attorneys at law. So the vast majority of them are lawyers coming with great litigation experience.
1: You know, um, Artem, one of the most interesting things you say in your, um, your, your piece on Burford on Sum Zero is that um, you think of Burford as the Blackstone of litigation and finance. Can you just explain what you mean by that?
2: Yes, absolutely. When I analyzed Burford, I looked at where litigation finance as an industry stands today. And I saw a lot of similarities with where private equity was in the 70s and early 80s. And as you can, and when we look back at that time, private equity was relatively small asset class. And if you look at, at the, where private equity stands today, It's a massive, one of the most dominant asset classes out there and Blackstone has become the dominant force. Blackstone was not the first private equity firm that started and there is a wonderful book, The Kings of Capital and it talks a lot about the history of Blackstone as well as private equity and how many firms started before Blackstone and how Blackstone successfully outcompeted them. And I saw a lot of parallels with Burford, both in terms of industry size of litigation finance right now is very, very small. It's a few billion dollars a year at best. And it's grown very, very rapidly. And I think, I thought back then, and I still continue to think so, that Burford has a very good chance of becoming the, tr- it already is the truly dominant force in the space. And I think it it will, it will continue to be. When you talk to can you, you can you quantify
1: that a yeah. little bit in terms of the um, the total uh, you know amount of money Burford invests in litigation versus its peers on a, on an on an annual basis? Do you, do you have any sense of that?
2: Yes. So there is a lot more data with respect to Burford because it's a public company, so its disclosures are very extensive and very very sizable. Now, if you look at its private peers most of them are private, private investment funds. Some of them are structured more as a hedge fund, some of them are structured more as a private equity type vehicle. So data about those is a lot more difficult to find, but you know there is a certain number of indirect sources where you can triangulate what, uh, what it can be. So if you look at that, the biggest, the biggest uh, private players are running no more than one billion in assets, and Burf uh, again, and most likely it's substantial less. Now, if you look at Burford, Burford runs between its own balance sheet investing, meaning it money that belongs to Burford as a corporation, and Burford takes them and invests them in litigation claims, and you add money which Burford manages for other people, hedge fund structures. Private equity type structures, as well right. as the Burford has a very unique arrangement with the sovereign wealth fund. Um, the Burford uh, manages few billion dollars, so it's a, it's a, at least three times more than, and probably a lot more than any other competitor in the space. So it's a lot, a
1: lot larger. Okay. And ha- and how does it compare in size to um, IMF Bentham?
2: So IMF is just an animal. IMF is smaller by five, six, seven times.
1: Okay.
2: And I would like to stop a little bit here and talk a little bit more about IMF. IMF was actually one of the true pioneers of the litigation finance. It's an Australian company, and by the way, many historians, so to speak, of litigation finance as an industry, say that litigation finance in its modern shape and form originated in Australia. Because of how uh, Australian law works. And IMF was one of three firms that started that industry, according to view of many industry insiders. But what is interesting, and uh, I believe uh, that IMF started in 2001, so it has been a long time. Burford, for comparisons, got started in 2009. So IMF had about eight years uh, jumpstart on Burford. Uh-huh. And still, Burford outcompeted them, and now Burford is the one which many other industry players aspire to emulate and copy. What copy the best practices from Burford, not from IMF. Right.
1: So, getting back to um, uh, kind of some of the controversy around Burford, um, you know, I'm sure you've read the the Muddy Waters report um, from uh, from from August you know, just sort of detailing uh, reasons why, you know, maybe Burford's overvalued. And, you know, a lot of it hinges on kind of their accounting of, 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 of these cases and um, just how they're carried on their books. Um, do you want to maybe just summarize that for, for folks, just kind of what the, the, the bear case is? And, and then we can go into some of the cases, because I think, um, you know, there were a few in particular that, that the Muddy Waters Report cites. Um, that uh, at least you know from their standpoint is concerning, but but what 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 do you I mean? How do you sort of um, how would you summarize the the, the overall bear thesis on, on Burford?
2: So Marty Waters and Carson Block, whom I view as one of the best short sellers out there, uh, published a short thesis on Burford. I believe on August seven,
0: and right. there are
2: about seven claims which have been numbered. And there are several more that have not been numbered, but can be separated from, from their writing. And for the sake of brevity, I will group them into two big areas. So one of them is everything which relates to financial accounting.
0: Yeah, let's I- go through I- that. Accounts,
2: sure. International financial reporting standards. So that's one big block. And it says like and, and Muddy Waters claims that that accounting is inappropriate, it's, it's incorrect, pretty much. And then there is a second block of questions, which, in my opinion, were more concerning, and they sounded more concerning and more disturbing, and those really deal with the ethics of the management, their honesty, and as a result, credibility. And those claims, I would give a couple of examples, would go like this. Company said that they made... X percent return. In reality, they made Y, and Y is a lot lower. Or the company lost the case, and instead of recognizing that loss right away, they waited for two years, and only then they recognized it as a loss. And to be clear, when we talk about the second area of questions, the honesty, the credibility, the ethics, etc., and we talk about manipulating returns, we're talking about non-IFRS accounting. Because what Burford does, and it's important to understand for anybody who is listening, is Burford effectively provides two sets of accounts to investors. One is a classical IFRS accounting. Okay, that's one. And another one is really cash accounting, where Burford provides gross numbers and says, this is a long table of all of our cases. This is a case where we invested five million and two years later, we received back our $5 and we received another three for a profit of 60% over two years. And this is our IRR based on the timing of cash flows when we deployed them. So, those two sets of records and the ethics and the ethical allegations had to deal with the second block. Well, so, so August 7, and Carson publishes a report and shares us you know, literally half and half. I think intraday they were trading even lower and uh, remember this is a sizable position for the fund which i run and also i am probably the most publicly recognized bull on the stock so which as you can imagine and can appreciate creates all types of biases commitment bias consistency bias etc etc and as you can also imagine my inbox both on my Sum zero account and my email uh, is uh, blowing up because Lots of people reaching out and saying like, what do you think about Carson Block's report? What do you think about Marie Waters? Do you think they're right? What do you think about Naipa? What do you think about that? And it goes on and on and on, right? So at that moment, I think what I did right was to set up priorities very, very clearly. So priority number 1 is to take care of the portfolio to take care of the book and protect the capital and take care of my limited partners that's priority number 1 and priority number 2 they go they go hand in hand i cannot say which one is higher right they are both very very important so that's number 1 priority then what follows from that everything else is not important it's not important whether i was right in my initial report or wrong in my initial report i must evaluate the new facts and circumstances with a fresh leg and be willing to admit if i'm wrong i should get out of the position feel bad about my mistake and move on with my life if i'm (laughs) right however then and remember it's very easy to persuade yourself that you're right when you've been public on something it's very very easy so you really need to challenge yourself and say assume that you cannot at that moment you ca- I cannot start with an idea that I'm right and Carson Block is wrong, right? I need to start with a premise that I was wrong and Carson Block is right. And what it means if he's right? And can I disprove his case? It's not about going through the evidence that it's a great company and a great management team, which I think they are both great. But I forget about my evidence, which I had from the past. I need to look at his claims and either be able to disprove them with a very high degree of confidence, or I don't know what I'm doing. Like It's very, very simple. What it also meant is that communication with anybody else, and unless they are my limited partners, is not important and it's not a priority. So what I did, I posted on Sam zero and I responded to a few people via email, something along the lines, I appreciate your message, Right now, there are new facts and circumstances that I was not aware. They did not exist literally 24 hours before that. Or rather, the the report did not exist, which Carson published. So I will not be commenting on this investment until I reach definitive conclusions. In this case, it's too premature. And I'm not going to compound my biases and my desire to be right right now by writing more about this. It's pointless.
1: Right. But now that you've had time to digest the report, you feel... Do you, do you feel as confident about the name as you did before the, the report was released?
2: So within a few days, after a few days, after, after Marty Waters published the report, we substantially increased our position in the portfolio. We wow. brought it to the level which we feel is appropriate given the risk-reward. And again, a few days were perfectly fine to do enough work to know, to believe and I have a strong view that uh, Money Waters' position, in our opinion, is a mistake. Right. I think they created a very persuasive mosaic theory, which supports their views, but there are plenty of other facts when they put together with their mosaic theory, in my opinion, show that their mosaic theory is incorrect. So because of that, we felt comfortable to increase, the power, to increase our position. And uh, that's what we did. Oberson,
1: but, after but think, that was you, over. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that speaks volumes. The the fact that you actually uh, increased your your exposure after um, you know after after the Muddy Waters report came out. Um, uh, okay, so just just so um, folks can understand the accounting a little bit better, um, are they required to provide just sort of um, cost accounting for? Um, these, I mean, like w- w- over time. Let's say a case starts in 2020. Um, do they carry the cost of that um, litigation on their on their balance sheet, or do, is it adjusted depending upon their view of what that investment is worth at that point in time? Um, I mean, a lot of this is sort of um, you know muddy waters brings up on, uh, on on Napo Pharmaceuticals and some of the other cases. Um, maybe you could just kind of explain some of that, because it's a little technical, but I think it's important. Yeah,
2: happy to, happy, true. happy true. So let's start with the FRS accounting. So under FRS, Burford treats its litigation investments as level three assets, because they are financial assets. This is what it means in practice. Burford, In year one, Burford signs a contract with a client where Burford will fund litigation in the amount of up to $10 million. Burford funds five million year one. Burford records its investment as five million. Next year, Burford puts another five, now it's ten million. And let's say there is nothing happening in terms of legal developments of this case. Then in year three, there, are, there is a favorable pretrial ruling by a judge. In that case, if it's favorable, Burford will mark up the, will mark up the investment Anyway, between call it ten to forty percent, right? Burford has discretion depending on how that pre- ex- ex- specifics depending on the facts and circumstances of that specific ruling. And then, for now, my example, that ten million becomes call it thirteen. Right. Three million is a fair value adjustment. It's level three asset, right? So it's you know mark to model effectively, so it becomes thirteen million. Let's say a year later. There is another ruling, which is also very good for the client, and then Burford may mark it up to 15. And call it in another year, the client wins the case, and and, and that leads to Burford being entitled to call it 20 million in my example. In that case, there will be another 5 million recognized at that time. So this is how Burford accounting works under the fair value rules.
1: Got it. And so when Muddy Water says that, you know, they categorized, uh, you know, like going back to the NAPO Pharmaceuticals versus Salix Pharmaceuticals case, that they, they categorized that investment as a concluded investment, even though the case hadn't concluded. Um, what, what, what's sort of your argument against, you know, kind of to counter that?
2: Okay, so that claim Divya, is non-FRS reporting. That's okay. Burford provides our return on invested capital and IRR on all of its investments. And that disclosure is 100% optional. There is no rule either in the UK where Burford trades or in the US or in Guernsey where Burford is incorporated to provide that data set. Burford does it as a matter of goodwill to all investors to educate them and provide another set of optics
1: for people like me or anybody else. Who so do you think that, that, that folks in your shoes would chalk that up to management just getting it wrong? Or do you see it as something intentional, you know, getting to the point about ethics where, you know, they're not required to provide non-IFRS numbers, but they do with the intent of, you know, maybe misleading folks or just giving the wrong impression on how their portfolio of cases are performing?
2: My view is that the company, which engages in unethical behavior, would tend to provide as little data as possible. Because otherwise, the more data a company provides, and if a company lies, then it will be easier for public market investors to see mismatches and inconsistencies, which will raise questions. Because when you're telling the truth, it's very easy just keep telling the truth. If you're telling lies then people will need to remember which lies they have told in the past. So the next lie is consistent with the prior one and it gets a lot complicated. So in my view to answer your question, Burford, in my opinion, provides that additional data to assist people to understand their business. This is what happened in NAPO. Carson correctly points out that NAPO was recorded as a concluded investment in 2013, even though the actual trial and the jury verdict was delivered in 2014. And by the way, the jury verdict was a loss for Napo, who was Burford's client. And Carson, correctly, uh, brings up my question. How is it possible? What did exactly happen here? You'll, first of all, Burford recognized, recorded the win before the case concluded, technically, and second, Burford reported as a victory, even though the client lost. Like, that's a distortion of reality. So, this is what happened in Naples. When Burford funded Naples, Burford did cross collateralized cr- uh, its uh, entitlement to receive money from Naples. Not only from a victory of Naples, Naples again, Naples against Salix, that was the case that Burford was funding, but also from another litigation, Napal against Glenmark, even though Burford was not funding that claim, that that litigation which was was proceeding on its own. As a result, in 2013, Napal and Glenmark were litigating, Glenmark was winning on a bunch of grounds, and then the um, two parties had an opportunity to settle some of the remaining claims. It was an arbitration proceeding, so the arbitration panel gave them the chance. There was settlement reached on some of the issues outstanding in late 2013, and some of those elements of the settlements made Burford entitled To receive money from Napo, regardless of the further outcome of Case Number One, Salix, not Napo against Salix, which Burford was funding, as in other words, at that point it didn't matter what the judge judges will decide in the case Napo against Salix; it would not have affected in any way the entitlement of Burford. That's why. Burford recorded NATO as a concluded case because the key criteria for such classification was met, and that criteria is: will the ad- the outcome of the litigation impact our entitlement or not? Okay, in that case, it wouldn't, so they recorded as recorded uh, they they recorded the case as concluded.
1: That's really interesting. So, uh, also, just give us your thoughts on on the ProGas case. Um... You know, obviously Carson Block, you know, talks about that as being another example of um, sketchy behavior on the part of the business. So, if you can comment on that, that'd be great.
2: Yes, absolutely. So ProGas was a foundation of another claim that Matthew Water asserted, and that claim is that Burford delays recognition of its losses either in court or in arbitration, and ProGas is an illustration of that. So, what is ProGas? Frugaz was a company that was doing it was incorporated in Mauritius and it was doing business in Pakistan. So in international law, there is this concept of investment treaties, bilateral investment treaties that protect companies of one country doing business in another country. And in this in, in this case, Mauritius Pakistan Treaty applied. Uh, Progas uh, according to Progas position Progas ran into some trouble with the government of Pakistan and as a result they lost their plan they lost their money etc etc So Progas went to international arbitration panel its investment treaty arbitration and um, filed a complaint against the government of Pakistan The Burford agreed to fund that case and By the way, Burford funds a number of such cases, and overall that's an area where you can make a lot of money, but you can also lose the case, and in that case you lose the entire investment. So Burford agreed to fund ProGas because they believed it's a good case. Now, whether they were right or wrong on the assessment, we'll probably never find out, but ProGas lost it. Now, after ProGas lost it, they can still appeal the arbitration panel decision. However, appealing the international arbitration decision is a lot different from appeal in litigation in the U.S. This is what I mean. Generally, and remember, I'm a former lawyer, not a current lawyer, so, but, in, and I will simplify this somewhat, but in general, in the U.S., when the appellate court takes the case and listens to the appeal, the court can look at any issues of law and apply them. For example, the court can look and say the trial court misapplied certain rules, and we view it differently. They have the right to do so. However, in arbitration, the chances of uh, appeal being granted is uh, between 1% and 3%, depending on which law you talk to. Why is that? Because the grounds for appeal are very, very limited. So one of them will be the arbitration panel was conflicted due to personal or commercial relationship with one of the parties to arbitration. So again, it's a very, very rare. So as a result, Burford said, okay, we don't think Progress will win the appeal, so we will not fund that because we don't want to throw good money after bad money. And Burford, and then two years later, Progress lost the appeal, which was widely expected, and Burford only at that time, after appeal was lost, recorded it as a loss. And Muddy Water said they should have recorded it as a loss two years earlier, which on the surface makes sense because the chances were so, so low. Why not recognize it earlier? So, my response is that okay, first of all, Burford's policy is very, very clear. Until there is a legal possibility that the decision is not final, Burford doesn't recognize a concluded investment. And sometimes it's a loss, sometimes it's a win. But Burford is very, very consistent about that. And in that sense, that policy has been communicated to investors many, many times. And Burford applied it the way it was supposed to be applied. On top of that, there is a counter example where Burford followed the exact same policy. Where it delayed a recognition of a win by two years. And by the way, that win re- resulted in uh, 722%. And that's Tenver. It was another international arbitration case, it was the government of Argentina and uh, I believe the Spanish company and it was international international investment arbitration. Tenver won that case, but again Argentina went and appealed it and again it was roughly two years for appeal and chances for Argentina winning was between 1% and 3% depending on which lawyer you talk to. And Argentina did lose and only at that time. Burford recorded TINWARE as a, as a calculated case. So in this case, can one say that uh, Burford delayed recognition of a loss in the case of ProGas? Well, one can say so, that the policy prescribes such delay. I wouldn't view it as cherry-picking. And, but if you do that, you need to be consistent. You can also say that, oh, by the way, Burford delayed recognizing 700% plus ROIC win in another case, or you can put aside all conspiracy theories and just simply say this is Burford's policy, and Burford applies it very consistently, whether it hurts it or whether it benefits it. So that would be my response on progress.
1: Uh, I guess what, maybe to rephrase, what in your mind is the biggest um, ethical concern you have around Burford?
2: I actually don't have ethical concerns about Burford. Okay. Well, what, but what I meant before is to say that the the, um, the claims the um, what Marty Waters asserted in its report was fallen either into accounting camp of claims or ethical behavior camp of claims. And the biggest the biggest claim and the most disturbing one there was the one which actually also involved uh, Naples. Uh, Naple Pharmaceuticals, and it also involved the biggest shareholder of Burford in which is a big investment firm, and that claim was linked, was given the following fact pattern, which, based on mosaic theory, appeared quite plausible if you just read what, uh, what Carson Block and Muddy Waters wrote. So this was the pattern. Remember, Divya, we just talked about how Burford recognized a win in 2013, and then Naples actually lost its case in 2014, and how it looked pretty awkward right. in, in, in Muddy Waters' opinion. So that's what happened subsequently. In uh, 2017, Naples engaged in a pretty complex corporate restructuring, As a result of which, uh, it was effectively split into two businesses and Jaguar Health was uh, the new company which was a successor of NAPO, Jaguar Mm -hmm. Animal Health. And as part of that restructuring, Burford received $8 million and also received about 6% shares of the company which was listed, NASDAQ. And at the same time, Invesco wrote a check and put $3 million into Jaguar Health and according to, uh, to mari Waters, the only or the main reason and the main purpose of the entire structuring as well as an investment made by Invesco into ja- uh, Jaguar Pharmaceutical was, uh, sorry, Jaguar Animal Health, was to bail out Burford and let Burford Record some money to be received from this investment so that Burford could justify why on earth Burford recorded a win in 2013 when the case was lost in 2014. So that's the big grandiose conspiracy theory here. And uh, Mari Waters goes at great, at, at great length showing different elements there. And one thing which uh, Mari Waters even mentioned that. Look, uh, Burford subsidiary, a special purpose acquisition company called Nantucket had the same legal address as Invesco. It's 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 address of global headquarters of Invesco in Atlanta. Uh, right. Waters didn't comment on that in great detail, but I think it would be reasonable to infer by any reader. That G, this very cozy sharing of registered address, does kind of seem to imply that these parties were, you know, have a quite cozy, intimate relationship with each other between two companies. So it doesn't smell right. So that was the theory. And obviously, if, that's, if that were right, that would bring very serious questions and very serious doubts about the credibility and ethical standards of management.
1: And, and what's your take on um, you know, the conspiracy theory, I guess?
2: I don't see much of conspiracy theory, for a few reasons. So first, Invesco was a shareholder of Napo Pharmaceuticals at least since 2009. The first public reference that we were able to find shows that Invesco was an investor in Naples in September 20, 2009. That's number one. Burford got involved in funding the case a couple of years later. So that's number one. Number two, Invesco put uh, three million dollars into na- Napo back in 2017. Okay, so in that case. Did the the Invesco have any other reason to do that other than try to help Burford? I believe so. They were a pre existing investor. They believed apparently that it's a good idea to put fresh money to work, and they did so. That's number two. Number three, remember Invesco put only 3 million, and Burford got back 8. So somehow, another 5 happened to go to Burford. So who was the generous soul and why would they go and do that in order to benefit Burford at the expense of either their own pocket or the pocket of Napa Pharmaceuticals, which became Jaguar Animal Health? Well, it's not clear. So to me, that seems like a very reasonable business transaction, which has its independent business purpose, other than trying to save and bail out Burford. And finally, on top of that, there is another element. If the entire thing was a conspiracy theory, why would Jaguar Health, not Napo pharmaceutical slash Jaguar Health, its successor, why would they go and pay a lot of money to Burford for nothing? So the entire fact that Napo was willing, or rather obligated under the contract, to pay a substantial amount of money, $8 million, and gave roughly 6% of its own shares to Burford, to me implies that Burford did something for Napo such as funding their litigation services, and as a result, Burford became entitled due to certain developments in the court
1: or arbitration. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. Um, can you just... Do you, do, you, do you have any sense of what the catalysts are for the stock over the coming months? Or I mean, is it just earnings, or do you, do you expect anything else that could, could drive the stock upwards uh, from current levels?
2: I th- there is a... In my opinion, there is a very ironic thing About uh, Water's report. So I think Burford was largely on the radar until very, very recently. Even though it's a big, sizable company, leading its industry evolution, and the industry is growing rapidly. But overall, buy-side awareness was quite low. Anecdotally, a lot of people reached out to me after I published my initial report on Sam Zero. I've also heard from um, management that a number of investors came to them, pretty much carrying my report, when they, you know, started doing work on Burford, etc., etc. So the buy-side awareness is very, very low. Now, after Carson Block went public with the short thesis, now the awareness. has increased dramatically. That's number one. Number two, Burford announced that they will very likely list in the US. It will be a second listing. So it will be either Nasdaq or New York (laughs) Stock Exchange. Most likely it will also increase the awareness about Burford business in the US. So that can serve as a catalyst. Then the third one, and this is the one which I am counting on, is simply earnings growth. And continual execution picking up good cases making money as well as recording those
1: incentive fees when they become due got it that that, that all makes sense. Um and thanks again for um, you know spending the time to, to go over Burford in detail I know it's uh, um, a somewhat complicated situation um, but uh, I think your your um, analysis has been super thorough and you know I think, I think I think our viewers are going to find this very very interesting and educational um, but
2: uh, thanks again. Thank you, T.V.
0: Many thanks again to all of you for listening and to Artem, of course, for lending his time and expertise today. You can find Artem's full research report on Burford and 68 page rebuttal on Sum Zero. Keep an eye out for part two to this episode next week when we welcome another Sum Zero member taking the opposite angle in the Burford story.